Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Full Court Press has the latest news and opinions from men's and women's college basketball. Our hosts are John Fanta, who calls games all around the country for Fox Sports and others, and Kim Adams, an analyst for Fox and ESPN, and a former D1 baller who never saw a three-point opportunity she didn't like. If you don't believe me, check her Twitter page. Take it away, guys. Welcome to Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams, everybody, on this Wednesday, September 16, 2020. What is 70 nights away from one of the biggest party nights in our country during the calendar year? That's Thanksgiving Eve when everybody's going out, they're back in town, they're reacquainting themselves, they're headed to that local watering hole. Well, this year, Thanksgiving Eve's going to look very different in our country in all likelihood, but it's also going to look different for another reason. College basketball is planning to be on your television screen, the only sport that will be on that night on the schedule. That's because the NCAA put out their plan on Wednesday evening to start the season on November the 25th. And we have a panel of experts. This is a jam-packed full-core press with Fanta and Adams. We are going the full 94 feet with you. We will start with the great John Rothstein from CBS Sports, host College Hoops today. He's all over the place on College Hoops coverage, a true New Yorker, so passionate, you're going to love it. Then Andy Katz, NCAA.com correspondent. He talked to NCAA Senior Vice President of Basketball, Dan Gavitt, earlier tonight. And Andy has the logistics. He'll take you through some hypotheticals. We'll dive into that. Some scenarios of conference play. What's it going to look like? How much non-conference play will we see? And then we'll cap it off with CBSSports.com reporter Matt Norlander and his guitar. It's going to be fun. We've got you covered. The NCAA coming out with that November 25th start date. Some of the key details. No exhibition games or closed scrimmages will be allowed before that date. And you're talking about an October 14th. October 14th start date for practices. Teams will meet sports sponsorship requirements and be considered for NCAA tournament selection if they play 13 games. That's the plan if you have some obstacles, some hurdles to climb through in your season, which we know there's going to be some obstacles. Uh, maximum number of contests reduced by four in men's basketball because the season will start 15 days later than originally scheduled, which was November the 10th. In men's basketball, teams can schedule 24 regular season games and participate in one of those multiple team events that we've heard about here over the last couple weeks on where they're going, like Maui going to Sioux Falls, or rather uh, Battle for Atlantis going to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Maui potentially going to Indianapolis or Asheville, ESPN events going down to Orlando. So the point is, you've got a season cut from 31 to 27. November 25th is your start date. you got an October 14th practice start date, and we are 10 weeks away. We're 10 weeks away from the return of madness. At least that's the plan. There's a lot to get to, though, with that plan, 
and the national reaction from across the country. We've got it for you on this show. Let's get to it. We welcome in the Insider's Insider from CBS Sports. It's John Rothstein joining us on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. John, let's get right to it. What is your reaction to the NCAA coming out with the November 25th college basketball season start date? Well, it's a celebration for everybody involved, John. I think for us who cover the sport, we went through a situation last year, and, you know, I know you, like me, are a big food guy. I might like, you know, food a little bit more than you. I think I'm a little bit more willing to showcase what I eat than you. But I'm going to say this. I think, John, that last year when we looked at the NCAA tournament, I'm a big dessert guy, and I felt like for 11 months – we were baking a cake, and then we iced it, and then we couldn't have dessert. So, again, I know I'm more graphic on social media with food than you are. I did appreciate, though, what you did last Halloween. It was about some of your best work with, when you were associating different candies with different Big East programs. That was sensational. But to me, it's a celebration. We were robbed last year, and now we move forward with a new countdown towards a new season. A season, John that I firmly believe could be the most watched season or one of the most watched seasons in the history of college basketball because we aren't likely going to have fans in attendance. How do coaches feel about this decision? You know, I've spoken to four or five high major coaches already tonight. And, you know, I think about the scenarios that they were playing through in their head and they're excited. They're obviously feeling upbeat. And considering what we've seen so far in 2020, with COVID-19, with the divisive political nature that our country is going through right now, with all the racial injustice that we've had to deal with, we all needed something to look forward to and something to lift us up. And right now, kind of like the same feeling you get, obviously, when you have you know, an emotional high, everybody right now is on a completely different level in terms of their optimism, not just about basketball, but about life. We're going to have games, we're going to have practices, we're going to have multi-team tournaments, so there's a lot to be happy about right now. What's the biggest question in your head right now as to how all this works? What's going to happen with pre-existing contracts when it comes to non-conference schedules, and how much will testing take away some of those contracts? And what I mean by that is a lot of mid-major schools are not going to have the financial ability to be in a situation to test on the same level of a high major program. So now they're in a scenario where they are going to potentially have to walk away from something. And another thing you have to look at too is without fans in attendance, the money that can be offered for guarantee games is going to be potentially much lower. If a guarantee game is anywhere normally between 75 and $90,000, if it's $15,000, without obviously anybody in attendance, is it going to be willing for a team from the Patriot League to go to an ACC school? I'm not so sure about that. To that point, how much do you think we're seeing campus-to-campus -campus travel as opposed to mini pods throughout the country? You know, one of the things I learned a long time ago, John, and it's something that, you know, I passed along to many people. I don't know if I've told you this, but I'm going to tell you it now. It really helps in situations like this. Never speculate on speculation. We have seen things organically evolve here over the last, you know, two weeks or so, and especially on Wednesday 
thanks to the great stewardship of Dan Gavitt, which you, you know, I thought so eloquently have pointed out on Twitter time and time again. And now we're in a situation where we're going to have a season. There's going to be hiccups. There's going to be things that are imperfect. But the bottom line is we're going to have a college basketball season. I think it's going to be an unbelievable season from tip to finish. Let's stick with Dan Gavitt, John. What about him allows for a level of uniformity and unity in the sport? You know, the biggest thing that impresses me about Dan is his cadence. Things never get sped up too fast. Things are never moving at a tortoise's pace as well. He's always consistent regardless of the situation. And, you know, I think, you know, he was very measured in his approach. He didn't rush a timetable for a decision. And he made what was, I firmly believe, you know, the best decision possible for college basketball. He and the members of the Division One Council, you know, having that opportunity now to start college basketball the Wednesday before Thanksgiving it not only gives us the best opportunity to keep our student athletes and our players safe because the first semester is going to be over and done with, it also kind of creates a national holiday. That feast week window is always something that we're going to look forward to time and time again. But now, I mean, Thanksgiving Eve is always a big party night, but I think, you know, you might be setting off some fireworks. <laughs> I think I will be right in front of the turkey going into the oven. There is literally nothing better than that 48-hour stretch. Who yep. needs football when you have college basketball tipping off? And what I'm curious here uh, with is the fact that they put in the recommendation for at least four non-conference games. How critical do you think it is that they include that in the language? It's, it's really critical, John, and you know this as well as anybody. The NCAA had everything, you know, to do with this arduous task and getting people to a schedule and getting people to the court. It did not want to also undertake potentially having a – to find a new way to seed the NCAA tournament. This is something that was very important because non-conference inventory always dictates, for the most part, how good leagues are and also – how leagues are going to be positioned for the NCAA tournament based on how they do in November and December by keeping a non-conference portion of the schedule intact. The NCAA will not have to obviously alter how it's going to see the 2021 NCAA tournament. So now all that language is in place. You've got a season start date. You've got recommendations. You are deeply embedded in the sport. John Rothstein from CBS sports also hosts the college hoops today podcast. Check that out. If you haven't already, what is going on inside conference offices and coaches groups and athletic directors here throughout the next two weeks? Well, they're in a situation now where they're trying to find out what their teams want to do move, moving forward. You know, I spoke to one conference commissioner tonight, and he told me the first thing he's going to do Thursday and Friday is find out how the teams in the conference want to proceed. Do you want to play non-conference games? Do you not want to play non-conference games? How do you feel about travel? It's a temperature-taking time for commissioners everywhere, but everybody I've spoken with is just ecstatic and excited that they have something to plan for. There was so much speculating on speculation, which I told you is a major no-no, not just in college basketball, but in life. Now we're in a scenario where you have some clarity, you have a skeleton, and John, think about this. Ten weeks from tonight, we're going to have college basketball. Do you expect – the Pac-12 to be part of that college basketball. Yes, I do. Seven days a week and twice on Sunday. If I can 
quote Kevin Pollack and a few good men. And if you haven't seen that, John, you officially hate fun. I expect I, – I don't only expect the Pac-12 to be a part of it, but I continue to think after the comments made publicly today by the governors of both California and Oregon that the Pac-12 office knows that it has to act quickly, it has to act swift, swiftly. And this is, again, you know, something that I've been thinking about by studying these rosters and doing conference previews. The Pac-12 has a chance next season to tie its record of seven NCAA tournament teams, which we saw in 2016, and to put your league in a situation to do that, you need to be a part of the non-conference inventory that is going to be played in November and December. Think about this league for a second. UCLA, led by Mick Cronin, looks like the preseason favorite. Arizona State could be one of the more prolific offensive teams in college basketball and might have the best perimeter in college basketball with Martin, with Verge, with Josh Christopher, with Marvin Bagley. Then Oregon, Dana Altman, as usual, you know, a master at aligning the Rubik's Cube. They're always going to be a top 25 team. Arizona's Arizona. Colorado is McKinley right back. Evan Mobley, Isaiah Mobley, and USC look like an NCAA tournament team. Stanford, even though it lost Tyrell Terry, brings in Zaire Williams. Those are seven teams, not counting a sleeper in Washington, not counting a Utah team that brings back Donnie Tillman, that again have what it looks like to be an NCAA tournament caliber team. How do they get there? They got to play in November and December. I am anticipating, and if you had to ask me right now, if I had to hedge one way or the other, I'm saying without question that the Pac 12 will be a part of the golden window of college basketball that has been established from our November 25th start date to the end of the second, to the start of the second semester. Let's look across the country and go beyond the Pac 12. Since you brought up one league, John Rothstein, what league are you highest on heading into the 2020 21 campaign? The Big Ten. And the Big Ten was going to get. 10 NCAA tournament teams into the NCAA tournament last year had it not been canceled. But, John, the league is deeper right now than it was last year, and it's going to be better. Northwestern is going to bring everybody back and add an under-the-radar transfer from William Mary and Chase Audige. Nebraska has completely flipped their roster. John, eight of their 13 scholarship players are transfers, including Teddy Allen, who averaged over 11 points a game at West Virginia in the 2018 NCAA tournament they're going to be better but this is one thing to keep in mind as you evaluate the Big Ten just because it's going to be better at the bottom that doesn't necessarily mean more NCAA tournament rep representation remember this for a second when you look at what happened with the ACC which I'm just going to call right here when it, it was loaded in during the 16-17 season when you had a 13th place team in NC State win a game at Duke, and a 14th place team in Pitt, win against Pitt, win against Virginia and Florida State, who was a five and a three seed respectively. One of the things that happened, because you had so much depth, was the bottom of the league started to eat the middle. That could happen next year in the Big Ten. Just because it's better doesn't mean it will usurp 10 NCAA tournament bids, which it would have had last March if we had an NCAA tournament. Not Gonzaga. And if you need to take that for a second, you can. No, it's okay. I've gotten good at multitasking. You're my guy. I got to stay with you. <laughs> Best mid-major. Okay. I do not count teams from the Atlantic 10 
and the Mountain West as mid-majors. I will say that. The best non-power conference team, okay, that I think will be in play other than Gonzaga, St. Louis, Richmond, San Diego State, still San Diego State, spoke to Brian Dutcher a couple of weeks ago, has high hopes, obviously, for the Aztecs. Matt Mitchell, Jordan Shackles back. And the team I like, again, not a mid-major, but a non-power conference team, is Boise State. Boise State, thanks to a couple of transfers from Arizona, Devin Air Dutrieve and Emmanuel Acott, will add a high major feel to the Broncos. They also return a player who I think has an excellent chance to be the Mountain West Conference preseason player of the year in Derek Alston Jr. Boise State has a chance, in my opinion, to compete for a Mountain West regular season title. And another team that, again, will come from a mid-major league that I think has a chance to be in the conversation of being next season's maybe Dayton or San Diego State is Western Kentucky. Western Kentucky last year won 20 games. Charles Bassey, who was an All-American candidate before he hurt his knee, only played in 10 of those games. Four double-figure scores, including Bassey, your back, and Rick Stansbury also adds a key veteran transfer at point guard from Lipscomb in Kenny Cooper. Western Kentucky is a team at a Conference USA that has a potential All-American at the five and veteran experience. Mark it down. Don't get caught with Conference USA on your side in the bracket in the NCAA tournament. Do not get caught in that first-round matchup. Ask Fred Hoiberg in 2015. He lost to Jared Hass in UAV. Yeah, and look what Jared Hass is doing now. Right. Um, John, we're asking everybody that we talked to tonight to give people a, a taste of excitement here. The four teams in college basketball, not your final four necessarily, the four teams that you're most excited to watch this season. Fascinating question, John. You know, I mean, there's so many different ways to answer this, and you guys only have a half an hour slotted for me. So, (laughs) you know, I think there's, you know, that's a tough question. I think, you know, fan bases that haven't had a chance to perennially go through seasons to remember, those programs are the ones that I'm most interested in. Iowa, a legitimate chance to go to a Final Four, win a Big Ten regular season title get a high seed in the NCAA tournament. Illinois will be a team that will be the best that it's been since it came within inches of winning the national championship in 2005. Arizona State, to me, will be appointment television and will redefine positionless basketball in college basketball because of the firepower that it has offensively. Remy Martin, a first-team All-American. Alonzo Verge, a guy who falls out of bed and scores 15 to 17 points plus Josh Christopher, plus Marcus Bagley. So I just gave you three. And if you're asking me for a fourth team right now, who I think is going to be very exciting to watch, I am going to look at LSU. LSU, to me, has the most talented roster in the SEC, man for man. They brought back Javante Smart, Darius Days, and Trendon Watford. But the buzz, according to several well-embedded moles in Baton Rouge, is already palpable about Cam Thomas. A talented freshman, five-star recruit, Will Wade, when I had him on my podcast over the summer, told me that he felt like Cam Thomas could be one of the better scorers in the country next season. And obviously, LSU has been in the headlines for a lot of you know, reasons that they'd rather forget. But if they can get on the court, they've got a team, in my opinion, that's good enough 
to win an SEC regular season title. If you're good enough to win an SEC regular season title, you're good enough to get a high seed in the NCAA tournament. Do you have a thought process at all with Will Wade? You know, I go back again, and you're leading me right back into A Few Good Men because it's, you know, in my top three favorite movies. But there's a scene in that movie, John, where Tom Cruise is talking about the defense to Kevin Pollack, who I referenced, and also to Demi Moore, and he brings up an interesting line. It doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what I can prove. And the smoke around LSU's program is undeniable. It's at a very high level. But with that said, the NCAA still has not issued them a notice of allegations. So right now, even though there's so much smoke around that program, there's still nothing solid enough for them to issue a notice of allegations. I mean, it's kind of like that time when you and I were hanging out and you were telling the world that I had seven pizzas in one sitting. <laughs> I, then I, I saw you a week later. I said, that's not true, but that's how you get it. <laughs> I try to have eight myself. <laughs> looking at the state of the game, because I consider you somebody who's always uh, inside this game day in, day out. Looking at a couple of elements here, the recruiting calendar, no visits through the end of the year. For 2021 prospects, how do you think all this impacts them? Well, I think, you know, it's ironic all the things that we have coming to a head here in college basketball off the court. You know, there's the name, image, and likeness thing. There's the transfer thing that's been, you know, obviously a very, very, you know, closely followed topic. And, you know, I want to point out that obviously I'm not in favor of the rule. And now that I'm going to have the chance to say this, it's because I think, you know, the goal of the NCAA is always to make sure that these student athletes are to have the best possible experience that they can have while earning a degree. And in the research that I've done, you know, it's pretty well documented that if you transfer, you are going to lose on average of 12 to 18 credits. There was a young man who I found out this year was getting ready to transfer from one power conference to another. He was there for three years. He had accumulated 72 credits. And if he had went to the school that he was planning to go to and was able to get in, he would have went with 42 credits and only had two years left. So even if that gentleman was able to do 30 credits a year for the next two years, his fourth and fifth years, he would have been 18 credits short. So from an academic perspective, this isn't in the best interest of student athletes and only a small percentage is going to play in the NBA. So you might say, well, how do transfers do in the NBA? In the last 10 NBA drafts, 11 transfers were selected out of a possible 300 picks. Nine of those players redshirted. Let's look at the top programs in the game. In the last two national championship games, Villanova and Virginia played a total of 16 players in those two games. Nine of those players redshirted, four were first-round picks, and two were lottery. So I think, you know, when people think, well, obviously, you know, kids should be allowed the right to do this once. I understand that rationale. I don't agree with it, but I understand. But when, if you really study the numbers from an athletic perspective and an academic perspective, it's not in the best interest of the student-athlete. And, John, you know, you've been covering this beat for a long time now, too. A big thing that we see with roster management in college basketball is redshirting kids or sitting out transfers. You know, Kevin Willard has done it at Seton Hall. 
Tony Bennett, you know, has done it at Virginia. Last year, Virginia had 10 eligible players, one redshirted, Caden Shedrick, who was just a redshirt, and another redshirt who was a transfer, and Sam Hauser, you know, used to play at Marquette. So Tony Bennett only had 10 eligible players to work with for each and every game. A lot of coaches aren't necessarily going to be too keen, except really for maybe having bodies in practice, to have 13 eligible kids on their roster because you're not going to be able to keep them all happy. So if each Division I school, 350 school, takes one less player every year because roster management becomes that big of an issue, 350 less kids are going to have a chance to play Division I basketball. These are all part of the unintended consequences that we have to go through. So I've said my song and dance, but to piggyback off your initial question, if we are going to have less kids taking visits, less kids meeting with people in person, there is a greater percentage of those kids a year from now opting to transfer, especially if this rule goes through. We'll see what happens here uh, going forward. A lot to happen here within the, the coming months and within the next year with name, image, and likeness. That discussion is extremely fluid in the midst of trying to play college basketball through a pandemic. Do you have thoughts on name, image, and likeness that, that you have updated in, in your mind here as this process goes forward? You know, it's something that we need to give these players an opportunity to do. They need to have the opportunity to cash in if they have an opportunity to make some ancillary income. But it's also, John, you know, a good opportunity to continue to teach these young men about life because, you know, there is no teacher in life that is greater than adversity. I mean, and that teaches us more and more, you know, again, as life progresses to be resilient. And there's a lot of kids who obviously are going to have, you know, thoughts and dreams about really benefiting from name, image, and likeness. And it might only benefit a small percentage of the college basketball landscape. And it could be a good lesson in humility for everybody else too, that they might not be as important as they think they are, but they have an opportunity now to be resilient and you know, to deal with you know, an adverse situation. But we've got to give these kids the opportunity to benefit from that area. Now, again, there's going to be some unintended consequences along the way. If a power forward for one team is getting, you know, to benefit monetarily off name, image, and likeness, and the shooting guard in that starting five isn't, there could be some unintended consequences in that locker room. But this is where we're headed. we got to give these kids the opportunity to cash in off that. But I do think it's another opportunity to, you know, face these kids with reality that not everybody's going to be, you know, in a situation where they're going to be in the limelight. How do you think you'll spend your Thanksgiving? You know, I have already talked to my fiance tonight about the fact that we have to host because you look at where things are going right now. I mean, we are going to have a scenario where I'm hoping I'm in the studio right now for CBS Sports Network because we've got a couple of good MTEs. We got the Cancun Challenge, I know, on our air every year. You got Purdue, Clemson, Mississippi State, plus the Emerald Coast Classic. Florida, Illinois, Oregon, and also Iowa State, that's three teams in the top 30. And what about if Oregon gets a waiver for LJ Figueroa, the transfer from St. John's? And John, you know how it's rolling right now with the waivers. It's like seedless watermelon at a 4th of July party. Everybody's getting one. It's seriously, it's like, it's like, it's like we're at a 4th of July party, and it's like, you know, who wants a piece of watermelon? They're going, you know, everybody gets one. 
That that that's another thing too. Well, how wanna... how can that be regulated? Well, this is the problem, and this is just the truth. The NCAA opened Pandora's box with the waivers, and it opened up the idea that well, if somebody applies for a waiver, you know, you know, and they get it, you know, then other people can apply. But the truth is, because the waivers became so astronomical in terms of the amount that it was that were filed every year, the NCAA doesn't really necessarily, I think, necessarily want to do this, but they want to get out of the waiver business. So what's the easiest way to get out of the waiver business? Well, let's just pass this rule and be done with it. But do they want to do that and continue to have all these potential unintended consequences on college basketball? If this rule is passed, mid-major basketball as we know it will become obsolete. Mid-major coaches will stop recruiting, at least, you know, the majority of them, will stop recruiting high school kids altogether. That's other kids that will have the opportunity to, or won't have the opportunity to play Division I basketball. And I think more and more, if you look at, you know, how many programs have kids transfer up, look at Seton Hall, your alma mater, Quincy McKnight, Tock Molson, kids going from mid-major to high major, you're going to see more of that and you're going to see more coaches maybe look to spend time scouting other leagues and relying on synergy to do recruiting rather than traveling all over the place and seeing all these kids in high school. And also, how apprehensive are you going to be to take a high school kid if he can just come in and say, I'm leaving? Yeah, that's a, a situation that is a, a forked road uh, with with outlets that, that don't seem to have uh, many answers to them and, and a complicated scenario in, in the sport that there's tons of discussion on. But your point is totally valid in the lack of real transparency and by opening Pandora's box, leaving themselves kind of in between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and, and I want to I point this out now too because I'm on your program. Everybody's entitled to have their own opinion and I understand why people feel – well, they should be able to play one time right away. That's fine. I think it would be better for the sport if obviously everybody just sat out once that they transferred. And that's fine. But here's the thing you can't deny. The NCAA system with the waivers is broken. And it's become an absolute joke. And we're seeing that this offseason. It's like seedless watermelon at a 4th of July party. Everybody's getting a waiver. Tonight's a night where a parting shot is mandatory. What is your message, John Rothstein, to America? We've had adversity. We're dealing with adversity every single day. But each and every day, we have a choice. We can be positive or we can be negative and sarcastic. Never lose hope. Never to lose belief. And it's important to be in a situation day in, day out, where you're passionate about what you're doing and you're passioning, passionate about lifting other people around you up to a different level. And in a day and age where we really live with people, I think more and more, especially with all the vitriol we have right now on social media regarding some of the issues in our country that you and I spoke about earlier, you know, it's always better to take the high road because there's less traffic. And I just think, you know, it wasn't easy to get to where we got to today with college basketball, but you don't have a chance to get there if you don't have the right mindset. And that has nothing to do, obviously, 
with anything else than the type of person you are. John, you know, I've known you for a long time. I remember, you know, you interviewing me when I was, um, you were a student at Seton Hall. And I thought, so I remembered how prepared you were. I remember I was, it was a practice at Walsh Gym. And to see you blossom and to carve out space in, you know, in this field and, you know, continuing to evolve with Fox and everything you're doing at the Big East, it's awesome. And, you know, it's great to see you, you know, obviously have this success as an announcer and a broadcaster, but it's better because I know you're a really good, good person. So don't change and keep being great to people. As are you, John Rothstein. Uh, did you head to Bunnies or Reservoir after that? What'd you say? Sorry, my phone is ringing. Say that again. I said, did you head to Bunnies or the Reservoir after that? Did you head somewhere to South Orange to eat? Oh, that's a good question. No, I, I forgot. I think I might have. I, the place I ate it in South Orange was uh, was it Pete's? Pete's. I'm, I'm trying to think Pete's. It was not. I went there recently. Recently, I got a Peter's. Maybe I don't know. I got a. I'll I got have a, to look. I'll have to do some some intel. John Rothstein in a class of his own, 189 days after we needed to start that mentality of how we were going to get to this point. We are now 70 days away from college basketball. And check out that countdown every single morning, right? Tomorrow will be 69. John Rothstein, thank you. Thanks, guys. He's all over the story of college basketball start date of November 25th. It's NCAA. Dot com March Madness correspondent covering all things college basketball and beyond. Andy Katz joining us. And Andy, this decision being made by the NCAA of a start date and the different parameters that they're putting out, what did you hear about the interactions inside the room and how everybody on the D1 Council came to this agreement? Well, first of all, John, um, more than anything, they wanted to have a consensus and a unified date. This is not to slam college football, but um, the whole process was to come out with um, unity across the board. And remember, the Division One Council is made up of member uh, members from all levels of Division One. Uh, it's led by Grace Calhoun as the athletic director at Penn. Uh, member of the Ivy League, and they're not even playing in any sport until January at the earliest. Um, in terms of the dates, there was a lot of discussion. You know, there was obviously some people wanted the November 10th original start date. Some want to push it out to January. But the consensus was Thanksgiving week. And actually it had nothing to do with athletics. It was somewhat optics for the majority of college campuses, if not all, uh, but the majority we can say comfortably. Any in-person learning is going to end Thanksgiving. Um, any people on campus is pretty much going to end Thanksgiving. If there are final exams, they're going to be after Thanksgiving virtual. And so optics-wise, they didn't want to start a sport uh, right when everyone is leaving uh, from these college campuses. Uh, now, I know college football will be going on, uh, but to start a sport like basketball, there was no... Uh, consensus to do that until you got to that ho holiday week of Thanksgiving. When you think about how this all comes together, Andy, the recommendation to get four, at least four non-conference contests, how critical do you think that recommendation is in leading conferences and schools into navigating their pathway of a season? So that was the one piece that's not a 
that's not legislation. It's not a mandate. Uh, it's a recommendation. Uh, and, and by doing that, they're basically saying, we really think you should do this before you come to the selection process in March. Uh, but they can't order it because it's going to be difficult for some schools and some conferences. What we're going to see, and uh, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but I'm sure you were, is my gut is we're going to have non-conference, then conference. So to get those non-conference during that window, whatever that window is, from November 25th, let's say, to maybe December 20th or something like that, um, you know, more than likely, it may have to be neutral site events or home events that have multiple teams. I will be surprised if we see singular events. Um, you know, maybe they're regional, like a Louisville, Kentucky game. But even that, uh, what Cal, uh, John Calipari suggested on, on my podcast a couple weeks ago was, you know, you could have other teams come in, Eastern Kentucky, Murray State, Western Kentucky. And so everyone gets a few games at one site. Uh, the headline game is Louisville, Kentucky. You have officials that come to one site because people forget that. You don't want officials flying all over the country. You want them coming to one site and officiating basically however many games, four or five games. So I just will be surprised if we see that basic, you know, Sacred Heart at Seton Hall type game, that one-off. Um, because first of all, the guaranteed contracts that were, will now be revisited, a lot of them are based on having crowds. And so if you're getting guaranteed of anywhere from 80000 to $100,000, but now that school uh, at a power conference can say, look, we can only give you travel. We really can't pay you anything above that. Um, you know, those contracts may just go away. I don't think we'll see schools sue for the money because politically that would not go well, you know, in the ensuing years when you want to schedule some games. So if these schools are meeting up for games, if it's potentially three or four teams, however many teams during a weekend in a, in a small pod, let's, let's uh, look yeah, at a hypothetical pod, here. Pod is the better word than bubble. A pod. Because in a, in a, you know, in our new vernacular here, you know, we think bubble, we think the NBA. No, no. WNBA full season. So they're almost like mini pods. So then the thought process is, is the thought that one campus would be hosting those four schools? Because it, it gets my, my question of why was it so critical then to ensure that students were off of these college campuses? Are they, in fact, going to be used for games? I think they will. And so it's like anything. They want to de-densify these college campuses. You know, look, something that's not been officially announced but is going to happen so all the ESPN events are going to go to Orlando. Right. Um, and that means Champions Classic, which is before the 25th, uh, and all their tournaments, including the Diamond Head Classic in Hawaii, the Wooden Legacy in California. Now, the dates of how many dates, you know, are they going to be there November 25th to December, you know, 15th or something, and just have teams come down when they can come down and play games? That's probably what's going to happen. The um, Gazelle Group and the Hall of Fame Group, which run, I think, four or five tournaments, they're all going to come to the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut and, you know, for a, probably a two-week period. Doesn't mean you're staying the whole two weeks if you're a team, but the overall time period for this event, you know, maybe 10 days to two weeks, and maybe Team X comes down from 
to these five days and another team comes to these five days, um, you know, cluster of teams. And then we're going to see uh, independent events. Maui Invitational is going to either be in Indy or in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and the battle for Atlantis is going to go to South Dakota. People say, why South Dakota? Well, um, there's an arena, a hospital, and a hotel all on one campus, if you will. And so logistically, it makes a lot of sense. The other thing, John, that I've heard is, so let's take the Maui Invitational. So Providence is in there, Alabama, North Carolina. Yeah. Um, what you could see is they have their normal three-day tournament, and then they say to Providence, hey, um, and I think this would be, you know, in advance, you'd have to commit to the extra day or two. But, hey, on day four um, of this event, are you willing to play the team you didn't play so you can get a fourth game? Sure. Or day five. So if Providence didn't play Alabama, tournament's over technically, but you got to just play games. Um, so are you willing to stay for day four? Yes. Okay, so now on day four, Providence plays Alabama um, or North Carolina, whomever. So because there, I think there could be some schools, uh, also depending upon when their conference season starts, that may say, you know what? We want to just play all our non-conference games in one shot. And I think some will do that. Uh, we'll say, you know, can we get six games on this trip? Great. And then we're done. And then we move on to the league. Uh, and I think we're going to see some choose that path. So tonight, a uh, source telling me that G3 Marketing, close to finalizing a partnership with Winthrop University to take over their campus from November 30th to December 22nd for a non-conference bubble that would include 20 programs, ideally, to get anywhere from six, seven, maybe eight games in. How feasible is something like that? Very. I mean, the big thing is going to be cost and, tech and uh, testing. Um, who's paying for it? Uh, you know, are these schools going to go down there and just work on their travel? Um, but I think that's what's going to happen, John. Um, I think a lot of these contracts are going to get ripped up or just put off for a year. Uh, I just can't see lawsuits, uh, you know, of you breaking this contract because we know the way this works. It's a small world. And if you are supposed to play at Gonzaga and you're Idaho State and, you, and Gonzaga says, look, you know, we're just going because Gonzaga actually is actually in the Jimmy V and the Orlando tournament. So Gonzaga, hypothetically, could just plant themselves down in Orlando and play, you know, six to ten games or whatever down there. Um, but let's say you're Idaho State and you were supposed to go to Gonzaga and Gonzaga says, you know what, we're not playing that game. Oh, we have a contract. Uh, okay. So if you want to fight us in court over it, and if we lose, by the way, we're never playing you again. Um, you know, are teams willing to take that risk in the middle of a you know pandemic when everyone's trying to work with each other? I don't think so. On a certain level, non-conference comes off easier than conference in that if your region is relatively safe you could potentially play local like you just brought up or you could go to that centralized location the acc stretches from miami to boston college the big 10 goes from nebraska to rutgers how do conferences work this out so um that's another interesting question uh i think first of all you're going to see more bus trips than ever before 
um, when you can do it. So for example, I already know Michigan State, you know, they're gonna bust Northwestern. Um, they're going to bust to, uh, I think the Indiana schools, uh, definitely obviously Michigan, maybe Ohio State. Um, Minnesota? Uh, that might be a little too far. And maybe Wisconsin's too far, but they're gonna bust to, I know they added at least four as an example. Okay. Um, so what you could see is just the regular schedule. Um, although I do think we're going to see the schedule being, um, if it is the regular schedule, let me rephrase that, of whatever that is, a Thursday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, whatever, I think we're going to see you stay on the road, not ping pong. You know, a lot of times you'll see, um, you know, Villanova at St. John's, you know, on a Wednesday, now you're back home to play Georgetown. Um, I think you're going to see them like, you know, stay in their own little road bubble, if you will, to play these games and then come back. So I think that'll be a tweak. The other thing that I know the Pac-12 did talk about earlier this summer is do you have some, in, some um, times where you would say, okay, let's take, and this is the other thing about what to do with the women's teams. Do you take your men's and women's teams, hypothetically, UCLA and USC, do all four of those teams go up to the Oregon schools, whether it's Eugene or Corvallis, and they meet those other four schools, the four teams, men and women. So now you got UCLA, USC, Oregon, Oregon State, and you just basically play your home and homes over one long weekend. Um, and, you know, you, you just knock those games out. And now you're done with, um, you know, you're done with four games right there in one weekend. Now you maybe wait a week and you do it again. So that's one scenario. Another scenario I've heard at a lower level for these conferences that are spread out for the American, for example, the America East. One thing they discussed was create a mini pod early in the conference season for games that are spread out. So Maine, UMBC as an example. You play that in your mini pod, then the back half of your conference schedule, that's when you're doing all the bus. All the New England schools just bus around New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Lowell, Hartford. Down below, you know, the New Yorks and UMBC and NJIT as an example in that league. So you could see something like that. Now where you run into problems are some of these other leagues like the American, which is really spread out. You mentioned the ACC, but the American's really spread out. You know, could you do a scenario like that? So um, there's gonna be a lot of moving parts over the next couple of weeks. But I think most importantly is these leagues have to make it very clear, as in maybe in the next 48 hours, we are playing non-conference games and our conference season starts on this date. Um, we can't have conferences changing their minds or you know, waiting till October 20th or whatever to say, hey, we're only doing conference games. Um, I just think they have to make those decisions now. Okay, we're, this is our date, and we're working on the conference slate now uh, to allow basically the you know the teams uh, to plan their schedules. Andy, why the difference? Just a question out of curiosity between men's and women's basketball in games. Men's twenty-seven up to twenty-seven. Women's up to. 20 well 27 but there's a difference in terms of if a team does not participate in the multiple team event you've got uh 
25 going on in men's basketball. And then for the women's side, you've got a situation where uh, they've got 23 or up to, up to a 25 cap. Is there any reason behind that? Well, I mean, I do think uh, part of that is there aren't as many tournaments for the women. Okay. And I do think it's going to be more difficult. Um, Why? But, well, no, just because the women play a lot of one-offs. And uh, I just think those are going to be more difficult to achieve in the non-conference. Um, you know, they just don't have these math. You know, there are obviously some women's tournaments um, around the holidays, but they don't have as many. And not as many schools have these MTEs, multiple team events, for those that, you know, don't know the acronym. Um, and so I think, it, you know, they're trying to give them some relief to say, look, it's okay. You don't have to schedule all these games because we know it's going to be difficult. When you think about just there's, – there's a lot of question marks right now. But in your mind today, do you think that the NCAA got it right? Yes. And I love that they spoke with one voice. Um, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, I work with them. Uh, but I just do think that we needed to hear one voice and a plan. Now the second phase is, as I said, we need to know when the conference seasons are, are going to start and we move from there. Here's the one elephant in the room, John. And this is changing weekly, um, but we still don't have this answer and no one has this answer yet, which is how do these schools deal with the state quarantine travel advisories? And that to me is the big elephant in the room because for example, Purdue is in the event that would be in the Mohegan Sun. If that event were tomorrow, well, as of now, Indiana is on Connecticut's bad list. And so Purdue would have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, now, they have massaged it about if you have a, a negative test within 72 hours. But that's still, you know, not very workable right now in terms of a team coming to play games. And with the Red Sox and the Mets and the Yankees, just using baseball as an example, um, or the NFL with the Patriots in Massachusetts and New York, sure. which, which all these states are pretty much in line in New England, um, you know, they have exemptions for these pro teams coming in. Uh, obviously, you know, Canada didn't do that with baseball, but these states are allowing these exemptions. But what are they going to do with colleges? And that's still an unanswered question right now. Uh, I'm hoping, obviously, these states relieve these things uh, by the time we get to November. But as of now, you know, there would, there would need to be relief or it couldn't happen. You talked to Senior Vice President of Basketball, Dan Gavitt, earlier this evening. What was your main takeaway from the conversation? Um, I would just say hope and optimism. Okay. You know, that's my main takeaway, that there really is a feeling this is going to happen. Of course, there's no guarantees in anything that we've been talking about the last seven months. Um, but look, earlier in the day, we saw what happened with the Big Ten, them I wouldn't say necessarily reversing course, but uh, amending their decision because of the medical aspect of it, because they feel they will have adequate rapid testing by the time they play in October. Um, I just don't believe they, if the testing was the same and you gotta wait days or weeks for your result, there's no way they were coming back, but they've been promised. And so is the PAC 12, you know, this rapid testing. And so 
if that all comes to fruition, they're going to play. Now, there still could be hiccups, and teams still could be sidelined, uh, you know, with, um, with players who test positive. Or the other thing, sorry to mention, John, real quickly here, is another elephant. You know, I got two elephants, all right? I got <laughs> the quarantine, and I got the contact tracing. Yeah. The contact tracing thing right now is really an issue because um, – and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you a fact. I've had a coach tell me tonight, before we started this, that they have halted their workouts because one player was positive and obviously other people have been around him. Everyone else on the team is negative. Well, because of contact tracing, all the players are having to sit for 14 days. That is unworkable during a season. Sure. Um, so that's another thing that – uh, you know, now with daily testing, you would be able to work around that. But right now we don't have that um, where everyone is being tested literally every day. So um, that's another, another big question that I think we still need to be answered. Hence why 13 games is the requirement to be eligible for the NCAA yeah. tournament. Speaking of the NCAA tournament, any thoughts on what that could look like? Well, right now the plan is as is. Um, so 68, April 3rd and 5th in Indy. Uh, there are contingencies. There are bubble plans. Um, I, I don't think the tournament's an issue because we've seen the bubble works. And so if we're in a situation come January, I'll say, where we're not out of the woods, um, they still have plenty of time to bubble it. And, you know, my gut is, you could do two things, and I know these, all these things are being discussed. You could have basically either four mini bubbles or two bubbles or one bubble. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, similar to what we're talking about non-conference, these sort of mini pods. But you don't have to bring all 68 to one place. Um, even if you did, uh, only four teams last the three weeks. So, um, you know, it, it shrinks a lot quicker than it would be what we're seeing with the NBA. Uh, so it's all doable. You know, the, they can extend the tournament if they need to in terms of dates, but there is a, there's a stopgap of mid-May if they keep it in Indy because the Indy 500 is still being planned the same uh, two weekends, and Indy 500 is a two-weekend event because of time trials before. So – they really can't go past May 8th if they keep it in Indy uh, because of the Indy 500. So that's another thing to factor in. With CBS and Turner, the windows are there with CBS. And with Turner, they most likely will be there as well because the NBA season is probably going to get delayed. Sure. And that would mean that if you delayed the tournament, I still don't think they will, but if, if I don't think you're going to run into the playoffs – in late April or early May, because I think the playoffs are going to be pushed probably at least a month. This wasn't planned because you couldn't possibly have planned this out, but it is quite the coincidence. Benefits to the NCAA being headquartered in Indianapolis and the fact that Indy is hosting the Final Four is a city that is more than capable and has shown us that they can host any and all major events and the potential that if they have to work out contingencies, the ability of that city to handle those types of things if we got into a bubble situation. Yeah, and also you've got multiple venues there. 
Um, if you have to move it out of Lucas Oil, you've got uh, um, you know Bankers Life Fieldhouse where the Pacers play. You've also, if you needed to go historic and really shrink it down, you could play it without fans at Hinkle um, and at Butler's campus. So there's multiple, you know, um, places that you could do this. Uh, it, it, you know, if there's no fans, um, obviously if there are fans, you want to do it a loop soil. So, but yes, of course, having it in Indy is the perfect time for the uh, for the NCAA staff. The women's tournament is in San Antonio, um, so that's the plan, you know, for the women's uh, event as well. Can't leave tonight without talking some actual basketball. And I'm asking each insider that we've had on tonight to give reaction. The four teams off the top of their hat that they're most excited to watch this upcoming season. So I'll give you two in the uh, Big Ten, Illinois and Iowa. Uh, I'll give you two. Um, I mean, I guess I would say I have to pick two others. I would say Gonzaga. Yeah. And Baylor. If I'm allowed to extend my list. Extend the list. I would add in Villanova and Creighton. You added an elephant in the room tonight. We could add two teams. We could add two teams to your list. I think that's now, perfectly understandable. that I did not add, but I obviously am intrigued to see. Okay. Uh, because every year we don't know how good they're going to be, and they always have some of the best players in the country, are Kentucky and Duke. Speaking of Kentucky and Duke, this was one thing that popped into my mind. Cameron Indoor Stadium, Allen Fieldhouse, these venues that to the common fan and to the college basketball lover, oh, man, you're not winning there. How much does an empty Allen Fieldhouse, Cameron Indoor Stadium, if we, if we see that, that those venues are getting used, just affect the sport because we've seen sports – get pulled off with nobody in the in the seats but Andy college basketball fans in the stands I mean they're on top of the game at some of these historic venues so John you're 100% correct and that's a great question because um, I would argue that Allen Fieldhouse and Cameron are like a plus five uh, in terms of points and so you take away the intimidation of those crowds and I think it neutralizes it obviously the talent you know, on the other side of the bench for the opposing team is always at a high level. But um, there's no question if Florida State or whomever goes into Cameron, they're going to feel a lot better about their chances with no fans and being very quiet in that venue. And especially in Kansas and the Big 12, where that place is rocking all the time. So you're right. If there are no fans in each one of those places, um, it really changes the dynamic. Uh, but I'll tell you this, John, I'm convinced at least before the first of the year um, in these venues, uh, we are going to see what we saw this past weekend in college football. There will be some where there are some fans and there will be others where there will not be. And so there will be advantages there and it will factor in, John, let's say, you know, you start your conference season late December and um, let's say you're in the Big 12 and you, get, you have to go to Kansas early, and they have fans. Um, uh, you know, you know and, and that's a problem for you. Um, I'm sorry, I'm reversing this. 
you have to go to a spot that doesn't have fans early. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Or, you know, so you get an advantage of that. And then later, if you had to go to that spot uh, with fans, it could be a disadvantage. So depending on who gets, you know, the draws of when fans are allowed to arrive. With conferences, Andy, just purely speculative, from your time covering the sports, which conference do you think could be at the forefront of scheduling and of putting out a model that works for them? Well, um, I mean, the majority of these leagues are going to play 20 games. Uh, so, you know, that's number one. Um, you know, I, I think that the leagues that are obviously closer together, so, you know, the Big East, even though it's spread out west or west of the Big East or west of the you – know, <laughs> west of the Northeast. Yes, um, yes, I think they have a good chance to do, you know – a solid schedule like that. Um, the big 12 outside of West Virginia is pretty compact. Um, but I, I really think we're going to, you know, John Calipari said this to me two weeks ago about it's not going to be fair. Deal with it. The, the season and coaches have to just accept the schedule and not complain because it won't be fair. Um, and it's going to be disjointed. And I think you're going to see cluster of road games and clusters of home games um, that some teams are just going to have to deal with. Andy Katz, all over the college basketball scene and college sports, NCAA.com. Get to CB Beyond Fox on Twitter. He did a whole breakdown. If you just have those questions of how does this work or what, what happens here, he gave you the nuts and bolts of the situation. Andy, I can't help but say it. There has not been a night like this, very few, since 189 days ago when everything got shut down and to now know that there's 70 days to college basketball. Of course, you think about those other athletes who, who haven't been able to play uh, this fall, uh, but the sport that we do cover day in and day out and a sport that is so, so important as a part of the lifeblood of the NCAA it's there's been few and far days here in nearly the last 200 that I can say a smile on the collective faces of kids and of coaches. There's going to be hurdles. It's not all going to be perfect, but Andy, I think the unified message tonight, and I think the hope that college basketball can return because it was the sport that did get canceled and did not resume that there's reason to be optimistic. Yes. Uh, but I still caution we got to take care of our business, wear masks, and, you know, don't party if you're on a college campus. Not worth it. Uh, not just for athletes, but obviously students. We're seeing what's happening around the country. So we just hope that we're trending in the right direction and don't have massive setbacks between now and Thanksgiving. At the Andy Katz on Twitter, follow him there at NCAA.com. Andy, thank you as always here late at night on a Wednesday. It is good to see your face. Thanks, John. He's been all over the latest college basketball news. You can follow him at cbssports.com. It's Matt Norlander joining us now to continue our national insiders whip around, breaking down the start of the college basketball season, November the 25th. And Matt had a CBS Sports exclusive earlier tonight as we're taping on Wednesday, talking with NCAA Senior Vice President of Basketball, Dan Gabbitt. Matt, 
obviously there's a lot of details and I'm sure that Dan Gabbett broke down. What is the overarching takeaway or something that you found really stood out about your conversation that you can reveal? John, it's great to be with you. Can we just say hello and say this is, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. So thank you. It is so um, good to see you. Absolutely. Don't ask me anything about the Indians, okay? <laughs> we, uh, I don't want to talk about them. Okay. So <laughs> I'll talk about the Cubs though, if you want. Um, so yes, spoke with Dan Gavitt about a number of things. Um, one of the, so, all right, I'll try and break this down relatively quickly here. A key thing to keep in mind here is, you know, Wednesday was a great day. We got a start date, but you know, we are not guaranteed November 25th and I'm not going to be a wet blanket or anything like that, but we have to get through a lot to make sure we can get to November 25 and have games. And I really hope we get that, man, because there are no other major American sports scheduled to be played on Wednesday, November 25th. NBA will be done. NFL won't have games until the next day on Thanksgiving. College football won't have any games. We won't have baseball season. We won't have hockey season. All this stuff is going to be off the table. And so college basketball has a wonderful opportunity. And I mean, like, from 11 a.m. or noon all the way up until close to midnight to just pack that day with as many games as possible. But there's a long way to go to get there with testing. We got to hope college football can play games and not have serious setbacks in its schedule. We have to wait and see about where this country is with the coronavirus as the weather gets colder and make sure there aren't significant spikes. We can't forget about the fact that, you know, some of these states may still keep certain quarantine rules in effect in county. So keep all of that in mind. And that stuff I touched on with Gavin. Also tied to all that. What we did not learn on Wednesday, which will be critical, is there were no official guidelines put in for testing protocols yet with COVID-19. It was told to me by multiple sources earlier this week that the, the anticipated suggestion will be three times per week. It remains unclear if that would be a mandate or a recommendation, but that is expensive. And so we still have to cross that threshold, and I would expect that to be done in October. In terms of the basketball itself, all those concerns are real. They're out there. Uh, what do you think of the feasibility of having non-conference play and mid-major programs being included as part of that, power conference programs coming across the aisle potentially and making sure that they get games against them? Because at surface level here where you have – contracts that are just simply not going to get fulfilled there's a lot of moving pieces and parts there so many and i've got equal parts optimism and skepticism over this so it's a really good sign i talked about this on the ion college basketball podcast <laughs> yeah, that's right dropping a plug in rate and subscribe as you do with fantas um john calipari has been an outspoken advocate for this we as bigger programs need to make sure that we are not leaving the mid-majors behind. And I do think there will be programs that want to get in, you know, feed, if you will, one or two easy wins, supposedly, and they're going to have a reduced number of games. Let's remind listeners that it was 31, and now it's 27 if you play in an MTE. Uh, and if you don't, that number will be reduced down to potentially 24, 25. But many schools are going to play in an MTE. But even that's still got to be figured out. I mean, we this 25th date just knocked off about 15 or 16 of them that would have started before then, and they got to figure out when they're going to play them. So that's a whole other deal. 
I do fear that we are going to have a situation in college basketball where the power conference teams fulfill pretty much their entire allotment of non-conference games in some sort of way, creative. Each school will have a different way to do it. You might have a situation where they go down to Orlando and literally play every non-conference game they can in a span there and get it all done. Some schools might say, you know what, I think we can pull off playing three games on our home campus with three local schools, see what we can do there. There's a lot of stuff with contracts about games that happen after November 25th that need to be figured out. But what I do think is inevitable and unfortunate is I can't help but foresee a situation where we are going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of mid-majors and low-majors that struggle to get even three non-conference games in. And while I understand from a national perspective, there's not, not milk, you know, much spilled milk and crying over it's going to be made of those. It's actually not a good thing for college basketball and its collective universe of non-conference competition because you want to get in as many non-conference games as possible to bring validity to all of your metrics when it comes to NCAA tournament selection. So as we bask in the fact that college basketball is kind of doing a good thing for itself here, it's got a date, it's not too far ahead of itself, it's not too far behind itself. Let's just see what the next two to three weeks bring in terms of what teams can do to make changes to their schedules and who does or doesn't get left behind. I hope that we can get a satisfactory outcome, but I do have skepticism that there won't be some schools that are in some really bad spots from a non-conference perspective. And one more thing before I toss it back to you, John. Uh, I think we have to also keep in mind the very real possibility that schools and maybe even conferences decide we logistically or from a health and safety perspective are not comfortable with starting our season on November 25th. We're going to sit out until X date or we're going to sit out and do league only. That will be another thing that could enter into the foray. I don't think we'll get any real sniffs of that for at least a week and a week and a half, but, uh, but keep that in mind as we go forward too. Matt, from talking with conferences and coaches, which league, or if it's two or three, do you have the most confidence in that they're going to handle this in the best way? Do you mean that in terms of strictly league schedule or both like with non-con as well? I'd like to look at it as a whole. I think, I mean, I had a source tell me on Wednesday night after the vote came down that the Big Ten is very intent on making sure that its teams get non-conference games in and a healthy allotment of them. So I think there's a good plan in place there. Um, I think the Big 12 will have its act together, relatively speaking, and I think the Big 12 has been investigating ways to have its conference season and kind of gotten ahead of things in a certain and quietly done so but I think that is very uh inspiring and those are the two that I have the most confidence in right now not to say like the other ones like what did I not mention Pac-12 well they got to vote to play again Big East well we got to figure out what they can and can't do and what they're going to decide in terms of league game allotment you know you got UConn coming and we got to see what happens with the Big East with all that ACC well, the ACC wanted to play and everybody gets an instantly tournament and that got shot down. So they got, you know, and, and no one else knew that they were going to do that. And that was not well received around the sport. I will inform you. So, um, so, uh, you know, others, other leagues are going to be able to do this as well. But I think right now, just to honestly answer your question, I think the big 10 and the big 12 are probably set up best at this moment uh, in terms of what they can do. But I think ultimately all those power leagues are going to wind up being fine. They're going to have the resources to get it done. 
Do you think we'll see conference challenges like Big 12 SEC, Big East, Big 10? Uh, yeah, very much so. Uh, I'm highly, highly confident that like the Gavit games are going to be played, Big East, Big 10. Uh, ACC Big Ten Challenge, I, as I understand it, that is going to be played in Orlando by all means possible with as many teams that can be down there if you can make that happen. And if it can't, then you, and you have a situation where uh, safe charter travel can be held from one school to another and then they go into a campus, that'll be done as well. But yes, the power conferences having those challenges, I think, is going to be a premium. Just to kind of remind your listeners, you drop the, the non-conference allotment down to 27 and you play in a 20 game conference schedule, which I think is going to be a case with a lot of these leagues. And then you play in a three game MTE. Suddenly you have four games to fill and that's it. That's your max. And so it becomes a preference of what do we want to fill it with? How do we want to boost our resume? And I think the, the interconference things so that is the highest priority outside of the high profile MTE events where some of these conferences will have their schools playing in them. Do you fear that there are things that could happen in this unprecedented season that could carry with the sport in future years? Uh, like what? What's, in, what's, in your, what's on your mind, John, when you ask that question? Like mid-majors getting harmed. Yes. Um, I think that is something that could have longer-lasting effects. Um, now, the schedule is going to go back to the size that it was once that's doable, but I do think there is the potential for that. I, I hate 20-game league schedules, and those are becoming more of the norm, and I don't think they serve mid-majors well because then you have these, you know, it's just a total rock-and-a-hard-place kind of deal, man. Like you got these made-for-TV matchups, which are really good for college basketball in November, December, your Gavit games and all sorts of stuff like that, CBS Sports Classic, Champions Classic. These are games the sport needs to play. But there needs to be a little bit of room for conferences, power conference teams, to be willing to schedule good mid-major programs and not be afraid of a loss in that kind of case, continue to build out the resume. Some, co some coaches still aren't afraid of doing this. But, um, but you know. We shall, we shall see on all that. I'm literally getting a text from a source right now. Hold on one second. We're going to do this. I love this. This is as we're taping. Can't share this on the pod. Nope. Um, but I can't share this on the pod, but I'm, I just got a piece of information that someone else told me. It relates to the Big Ten, and uh, it's nothing earth-shattering. Earth but anyway. Um, <laughs> but yes, no, to answer your question, I do think that – the mid-majors could have some long-lasting harm to them. And you need to have a situation, frankly, where um, conferences that, that have, you know, three or four relevant mid-major plus teams, if you will, uh, try and schedule each other, help each other out, because, you know, there's only really, like, you can count 15 or so coaches and power conferences that are willing to kind of schedule. I'll name a few of them, like Izzo, Roy Williams, Tad Boyle. These are coaches that just don't schedule scared. They never have. They're willing to go play on the road against mid-majors. We need more coaches like that, not fewer. And there's no telling if that situation is going to change in five or ten years. Thirteen games, that's the requirement to be eligible for March Madness. You talked about how the, the cutoff of four games, meaning 27, and the situation with the MTEs there. If you've got 24, then you've got the three uh, MTE games. You know, I'm, I'm looking at everything that came out here today, and it is a, a detailed approach. You brought it up that let's not put the cart before the horse here because there are a lot of things that have to happen 
over the next 10 weeks for everything to tip off as is. But as it stands today, do you believe that the NCAA did everything that it could in this announcement? Um, probably not. Uh, but it was a long meeting. It was a scheduled meeting for four hours. It went four and a half hours. So maybe, maybe it did. Uh, they just didn't get to everything. But, like, they didn't decide on things like COVID testing protocols, which I think having that sooner than later is what you want to have because these schools need to know what they can and can't achieve from a non-conference competition standpoint there. Um, and other stuff like can wait, like they haven't decided yet how the benches will look, how the score table will look, just certain kind of protocols that will have to be done with every single game, regardless of the venue it's played. And that, that stuff can wait till October, I think. But for the most part, yeah, uh, John, I think it got it done. Um, and I, I just I think timeline's perfect here. We're a little more than two months away from the start of the season. You're not so far out that you're trying to, you know, put the cart before the horse, and you're not so close up where you're in a scramble there. But um, you got to be able to be flexible here. And so in doing this, you know, if we look up at the end of October and the things are just like not looking optimistic, then you got to be able to push the season back even further and be willing to do so in such a way where like. I don't think we're going to get to this point, but if we don't start the season until January, like you're willing to play the tournament in April or May. So um, I think that they, they tackled a lot of what they needed to, to tackle there. And I think it's been, I think it's been handled about as well as it could be handled behind the scenes. I mean, think about how many schools, conferences, ADs, coaches, TV people, like there's so many buzzword of stakeholders, which is just growing to be a cliche way too fast, but uh, you can't appease everyone. And I think that a lot of people have been, arriving at this with a lot of pragmatism i will say that the the organizers of these mte events are not happy um because they were convinced that it was going to be a november 21 start date or a november 23rd the 23rd was when you had like maui and like nine other ones starting on that monday so now they're all like you know they're scrambling here but it was the right call in my opinion because college basketball will have a night to itself and you got way more students off of campus I thought November 21 didn't make any sense. Like I was prepared to write about and talk about November 21. I just didn't think that made any sense whatsoever. College football Saturday, football weekend, and now it's the 25th. And uh, we hope that it can, it can hold that date. And it bears noting in this process, Matt Norlander, CBSSports.com insider has college basketball covered day in, day out, that when you talk about the testing protocols, you're going to get those fans and followers because it seems like, in this year of 2020, this keeps getting forgotten. That this is not a situation like Oklahoma football or the Big 12 just having the rules that they have with the pigskin. That the NCAA is going to be the ones to determine what it is you're doing testing-wise. And it does make me curious because, again, there has got to be, for this to be achieved, my take is, there's got to be a level of a blanket because you're just not going to be able to get the same assets and resources dedicated to every single school in the testing category. It can't be the end-all be-all in this. I agree. And we need more clarity on that sooner than later in terms of like, is the NCAA going to help with any of this stuff before the tournament? If not, it's falling on what the conferences and the schools. And if that's the case, like as a pure hypothetical, if this becomes an actual rule for the NCAA for college basketball, okay? And you are a team in the Horizon League. You cannot afford to test three times a week unless the testing drops 
significantly in price. And I mean significantly. It is not achievable. It's just not. So I'm eager to see if there is a distinction that will be made between you have to test three times a week. It's like an outright mandate, which if it was, I would understand it. Or if there is going to be some wiggle room in that where it is a recommendation. And then within those recommendations, schools that have less resources are afforded opportunities to meet those thresholds because testing will be provided to them by other opponents from bigger schools, potential organizers, or other people. So just keep that in mind going forward. And I think we will have an answer on the testing stuff in about a month. I think that's going to take a little bit of time here uh, before that gets in. But to me, that's the next big decision to be made outside of any sort of reaffirmation about what the NCAA tournament is expected to be. As of now, nothing's changed about it, but clearly behind the scenes, they're looking at like 15 different contingencies uh, and we'll introduce any of those if they ever become necessary. But that's a very tightly locked lid of a discussion at the moment. So I asked the two previous insiders who were on this podcast who the four most exciting teams were in their minds heading into the 2020-21 campaign. So fun that we're having on this pod out of all the logistics and some of the numbers and the crazy protocols guidelines that we've been talking through. Let's talk about some basketball. I would actually be curious here if you could guess one of the four, it might even be too easy, of Katz's and Rothstein's most exciting four teams. Did they so they gave you four teams apiece, and there was one team that they both said. I'm just yeah, that's what I'm asking you. How well you might know them, or or if you know what they might have uh, said. Let's see. First of all, because <laughs> you know Rothstein. I mean, Rothstein's going to go off and tell you how like Greek's eighth man's going to like. Explode. <laughs> we didn't jump into that. Can't yeah. get into that. Um, he's excited about Richmond. He's that's the that's the team you're wanting me to guess was Richmond. No, 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 no. Okay, I just, you're no. just saying he's pumped about Richmond. Yeah, the yeah. Team that they both would have said is obviously a preseason top twenty-five team. Yeah, preseason top ten. Okay, I'm gonna give me three guesses. Knowing you and your your day gig, if you will, um, my first guess is Villanova. Did they both say Villanova? No. So, so knowing me and my day gig, do you want my honest? This is the opinion I've never shared before. Break some news to your podcast listeners right now. Uh, Villanova is a machine. They're all business. They show up to the office. They more times than not beat the tar out of you. Excitement? Uh, I don't know about excitement. They're just really damn good at college basketball, and there's, no, there's been nobody better than them over the last seven years. But continue. Okay. Um, to me, my second guess would be Gonzaga, because it was literally the number one offense in the country last year. Did they both say Gonzaga? Cats went with Gonzaga, but you didn't. You do not have the common one. The, that, now, there's one oh, team that guess. might be. Oh, one more guess. Oh, one yeah, guess. one more guess. You get one more guess. Preseason top ten team. Yep. All right. So I don't think it's going to be Baylor. I don't think it's going to be Kentucky or Duke. To me, I don't think you can justify that answer being Creighton, and I don't know if it would necessarily be Iowa. So outside of those, and I don't have the preseason like top 10 in front of me. I'm thinking off the top of my head here. Is it one of the teams that I just mentioned or no? It's Iowa. It is Iowa. And then a fringe top, they're, they're all over the place. But Iowa and Illinois, they both said Illinois, Iowa. Illinois, I agree. Illinois will be very fun. That is the team that I'm all in on watching, man. They're going to be awesome and a lot of fun. And – 
they are going to be on the verge of potentially having their best season in 15 years, 16 years, for sure. How has Brad Underwood made it work so quickly? Well, I mean, it hasn't been super quick, but it, uh, he's been able to – honestly, I did a story on this last season. Um, Brad Underwood looked at his coaching style and looked at what was and what wasn't working and realized some of his methods and philosophies were outdated and went and sought help uh, with some more – analytically minded you know former GAs and and people that work in that space in the NBA and said where can we improve and they they tweaked his system and said you know you need to focus uh you know don't be so absolutely you know gung-ho on on this level of of how you want to rebound here and and be more willing to to take threes and, and and push your offense if you want but know when to rein it in and there was a lot of stuff that he did that changed how he coached his team and when you combine that with Kofi Coburn top 15 freshman in America last season uh, and Ayo Desumu who just was fantastic um, getting both those guys back but develop, developing them as real talents there um, it, it, it kind of just it, it all adds up and it's uh, it's been it's been pretty awesome to see um, how he has kind of upgraded what they do and not been so beholden to like I got to have the fastest team on the court because sometimes that that speed can lead to some inefficiencies and um yeah and so he's got it he's got it going and they would have been a tournament team last year and they're going to be even better next year and you're totally right I have to clarify he took over that job in 2017 so it hasn't been that quickly I think I just look at, at the fact that it's been a couple years but also it's been a little while by Illinois standards for them this is a seven-year Technically, you know, they would have been heading there this past year, but they haven't had an NCAA tournament team in Champaign since 2013. It's, and it's probably a top three, it's probably a top three, top 30 program that just yeah. has not acted or presented itself or performed as that in the country in the past 15 years. Illinois should be better than it is on the whole. Um, Hopefully it's on its way back, and yeah, he's got them. And they will—they can be just so fun. The fact they got Desumu and Coburn back is huge. That will be a top three, one-two duo in college basketball this season, potentially next to the likes of Jared Butler, Macy O'Teague. Uh, I certainly think that's out up there. You could say uh, Jeremiah Robinson or Earl Gillespie at Nova's up mm-hmm. there. You could say. I mean, Garza and Wieskamp are certainly up there. And you could probably say, honestly, you could probably say Kispert. And if Drew Timmy really emerges at Gonzaga, um, that's, a, that's, you know, Kispert's a big shooting guard. Timmy's going to be a power forward. They're a good one-two combo. A lot of good one-two combos uh, really in that top 10 to 12 in college basketball. And that's obviously no coincidence. Okay, so you had Illinois, maybe outside the top 10 to 12, three other teams that really, really excite you. Gonzaga excites me. Um, I, I don't think Nova will be all business, but I won't count them. I think Nova – I would have Nova as number one. I'm telling you right now, spoiler little preview, whenever I rank all 357 teams, there are 357 teams in this sport. What are we doing? When I do that, I will have Villanova number one in, this, in my one to 357. I think they're going to be the best team in college basketball. Um, hmm. Nova, Gonzaga, Illinois, maybe one off the map a little bit. Somebody that's like a little different. Yeah, I'm trying to think someone that's different. That'll be good. That'll be fun. 
I don't know how off the map this is, but I'm just super curious on it. Uh, well, two things. One, Virginia's going to be awesome. Okay. They're going to be well, awesome. Oh, I'm going to give you like, fun to watch, but they're going to be awesome. I'm just telling you right now. It could be tough. I'm putting you, I'm putting the pressure on you here. My other one is Oklahoma State. They don't have anything to play for technically right now, aren't eligible for the 2021 NCAA tournament. They're going to have the best player in the sport, Kate Cunningham. Uh, Mike Boynton's a good coach who runs a fun system. They are my must-watch entertaining team that's off, you know, off the radar a little bit. Last one, because they're all over our mentions. They're back. Is UConn back? Well, first of all, <laughs> for anyone listening to this podcast that did not participate in the John Fanta July 1, 2020 <laughs> Heroscope breakdown, you missed some magic, okay? It was unbelievable. I was, I was in those comments. I was throwing out questions. I was throwing out shade. I was fighting away commenters. I think I tapped out at about 1240 a.m., but it was good times. <laughs> I mean, for all I know, you went till 3 a.m. because The comments were ridiculous. It was so good, though. It was, it was peak off-season college basketball Twitter, and I loved it. <laughs> is UConn back? I would hope we're not going to make UConn is back into the college basketball version of Texas is back. Oh, no. Maybe we will. I don't know. Um, they've got a good shot at being pretty good and tournament worthy, in my opinion, this season. They really, really do. And Hurley didn't have that team last season where he wanted it in full. They wouldn't have made the tournament. I just looked it up. They went 19 and 12. I actually thought it was a little worse than that. It wasn't, but they ended the season on a five game win streak, but book nights, the absolute real deal. Um, I don't know what, maybe you'd know this and we don't, we do not need to go full roster and like break down like the entire roster here, but a cook, a cook, I think he can be on pace to return by December. I think. Yeah, that's the goal. The goal is by somewhere around December. He's well on pace for that. Get him back in the mix. Tyrese Martin just became available. He did big time addition there. So UConn back in the big East and they got a shot at being a top five team in that conference. In my opinion, if you're a top five team in the Big East this season, you're making the tournament if there's a 64-68 team field. And it's a real cool thing. I just wait and see on what the conference opts to do with its league inventory and how it adjusts to things therein. I live in Connecticut. Mohegan Sun is going to be hosting a number of MTE events and um, – I'll be interested to see if Connecticut winds up sticking with going to Florida for the Orlando bubble, or if it stays, uh, stays close to home and makes things logistically easier. But yes, they're going to be involved and, uh, and they're going to be a factor in the big East, but I'm not there yet that they're like top 25 material. I gotta, I gotta see at least them play like seven or eight games before I can get there. All right. Last dance. What's the last song you've listened to? Are you right now? Hold on. Cause you are a big music buff and you play the guitar. I do. I do. Um, You've been ripping my Browns on Twitter. They play again Thursday night, so I get got, ready. I got, listen, then. I had Lamar in fantasy on me my week. I also have Nick Chubb on my team, and he didn't have a big game, so I'm actually I'm anticipating anticipating a nice little uh, – Big bounce back coming Thursday big night. Big bounce back from Chubb. Big, big bounce, bounce back. back. Yeah. He's, he's one of my keepers here. My most recent – Hold on, I'm going to bring it up here. Uh, this is amazing podcasting right now. Cause I got, I listen, everyone's like, everyone listens to like Apple music, Spotify. I'm actually an Amazon music unlimited guy. That's, that's what I do there. And 
my most recent well i listened to the J- oh, first of all this is so sports writer of me and it's literally only the third time i've listened to this album in the past like three months but i listened to jason isbell and the 400 units reunions i listened to that on monday that's the most recent music i've listened to but uh but there's a ton of uh ton of good stuff out there and uh i highly recommend if you have not sought out music as of late please go find it it's good for your brain particularly in the midst of a pandemic when so many of us are stuck inside so get yourself some music Help your brain out a little bit there. That's all I got for you. Matt Norlander, follow him, cbssports.com, at M-A-T-T-N-O-R-L-A-N-D-E-R. Matt Norlander, thank you so much for the time tonight. John Fanta, you're welcome. That was dope. Well, I think we covered everything you need to know about the state of college basketball at the time. We even gave you some of those teams that you could be excited about. We talked about the state in the sport as well with John Rothstein. He had some great perspective on that. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But in this year of mixed opinions and division, we can all come together and say, hey, there was a collective smile on our faces. I could feel it from all of our listeners at around 7 o'clock tonight when you had known Hey, November 25th, we're back. The plan is to tip off this 2020-21 season and start a road to March that, as John Rothstein said, we can bake that cake and we know, at least we're as close to knowing, that this time we're going to complete the baking of that cake. Because I think last year, as unprecedented as it gets, we're definitely, we definitely know more about COVID-19 uh, than we did then. Day by day, it's going to take a process, but we've made it this far. We've made it this far. We can get to November 25th, folks. Keep wearing a mask. Keep social distancing. And stay positive out there because we're going to get there. We're going to get to that madness. Speaking of madness, there's madness in the bubble right now. And we've got you covered on Pure Hoops Media with everything happening in the NBA playoffs. Another episode of Full Court Press with Vance and Adams in the books. Thanks again to John Rothstein, Andy Katz, Matt Norlander for spending time with us. Thanks also to our producer, Mike Lieber, Bruce Bernstein for all of their help. Tom Phillip, he does a great job, our brand new editor. He ends the show. We always appreciate his contributions. And you can check out our other Pure Hoops Media shows. It's Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. It drops each Wednesday. Each Thursday, Monica McNutt, as well as King McClure. They drop by with buckets, boards, and blocks. Every Friday, it's the Pure Hoops Podcast with BJ Armstrong And Eric Newman, I love their NBA breakdowns, a lot of fun. And then you talk about interviews, folks. The Mike Wise Show drops each Monday, Monday, and we'll be back every Tuesday with Pure Hoops Media's Full Court Press. Check out our shows, subscribe, download them, rate and review them, most of all, enjoy. And we will see you next week. A full 94 feet on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.